Hello and welcome back everyone to Greater Than Kill. This is episode 166. This is Shantae Thurman and I'm here with my co-host Jacob Stobel. Hello, thank you. And I'm here with our esteemed guest, Phil Wheeler. Phil is a recovering software engineer who now works as a development manager for a life science education and research company in Dunedin, New Zealand. He's a classically trained percussionist who teaches music in the weekends and loves getting out on the mountain bike or playing and watching cricket. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks very much, Jacob. G'day, Shantae. Nice to meet you. So, uh, nice to meet you. I'm sure you know our first question, our first famous question, which is, what is your superpower and how did you develop it? Yeah, I should apologize for the accent now, just for the listeners in case they struggle. I'm going to pronounce things weird. Yeah, my superpower. Um, <laughs> I listen to this sort of podcast all the time and I sort of sit there in the car sort of thinking, what the heck's mine? And I've never really landed on one that I'm super happy with. But I keep coming back to sort of putting myself in others' shoes. I can sort of, I, I sort of really get people and like bringing people together and trying to sort of work, work out and sort of find common ground with everyone. Um, it served me well with sort of trying to get kids when I, that I'm teaching onto a sort of similar level, trying to sort of feel, make them feel encouraged. It's uh, helped me with software development, working with clients, and it's just sort of something that seems to be a, a natural thing for me, you know, especially as a developer who are notoriously sort of more introverted. I really sort of like, uh, like engaging with people and sort of trying to sort of get everybody on a good working footing. Yeah. Okay, so we said that you're a recovered engineer, and I think that's because you said that you you went into management. I did, yeah. I've I've been a sort of team lead. I mean, it's the usual career progression, right? And it's one of those things that I think a lot of people in the software community struggle with at some point in their careers, where they've presented with sort of what's conceptually a fork in the road, and you have to pick either staying technical and doing your software, or you know, wandering down that sort of gloomy, ominous garden path of management. And I had a rush of blood to the head and decided I wanted to do that. Again, it was that, that people aspect where I, I really found that I enjoyed enjoyed enabling others more than I actually enjoyed sort of optimizing that algorithm. So yeah, I've been doing that for about uh, three years now. And I, I would guess that, that that empathy has only become more valuable in that career shift. That career it really has. Yeah, it's funny that the sort of the trade-offs that people sort of perceive aren't really as um, aren't really as strong as you think. I mean, sort of for a lot of, in my experience anyway, a lot of management is just sort of the same as software engineering. It's basically engineering with people. You're trying to optimize. You're trying to find a new creative way to solve a particular problem. It's just that instead of ones and zeros, you're you know working with squishy meat sacks, which is you know. A bit more intimidating some ways. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. So tell us how you came into the Greater Than Code community. Was it because you were managing people and you were looking for something to kind of help you with maybe what we all kind of consider our soft skills? I'm putting that in air quotes as a joke. But um, how, how did you come into the community? And has, this, has, has being involved in this community helped you become a better people leader? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Some of the guests that you've had on the show in the past have been, you know, really, really insightful people that I've sort of gone away, found out more about and, you know, grown a lot from. So it's been a terrific, um, terrific resource in that respect. I'm trying to remember how I, how I landed on the podcast initially. It was, 
I'm pretty sure through Twitter and seeing some chatter somewhere there, but also around the same time, a conference that I attend regularly in Auckland, New Zealand called Code Mania had Jessica Kerr on the show, on the lineup. Um, and, you know, I, I spend an unhealthy amount of time on Twitter. So, of course, I immediately followed her. Um, <laughs> she, she was great. She's, she's such a great person. You know, um, yes. Honestly, she's just, she's kind of happiness personified. She's perpetually sort of enthusiastic. It's great. But it was through that conference that I thought, uh, I think I was really sort of following the the podcast more deeply at that point. Yay! I'm glad to hear that. That's amazing. Shout out to everyone over at Comania and Jess because I'm sure she'll be excited to hear that. You know, <laughs> who knew? <laughs> yeah. So one of the things I was just reading our threads, and I know that um, you know we we threw out some topics that come to mind, but I would love to hear like. You know, Jacob and I are here in the U.S. and like we tend to have our rants and raves about things that are impacting the tech community here. But I'm curious if it's the same over in in New Zealand and if you all feel the some of the the same things that are impacting folks in technology, whether you're directly like somebody who's the software developer, somebody who's leading, or somebody who's like me. I'm like on the auxiliary. I'm I'm a, I'm a recruiter and I'm also a consultant for technology companies. So with more so with people in mind, like building team culture and, you know, thinking about diversity, inclusion in the workplace and belonging. Uh, but I'm just curious if some of the things we rant and rave about, you notice on our, on our threads and you hear them on the podcast, if these are the exact same things you're experiencing, like the phenomenon, or are they different? I don't know. I can't say if they're exactly the same, but there are definitely commonalities. You know, we're a Western and the, you know, usual sense, we're a Western sort of civilization over here or Western sort of culture here, sorry. And so, you know, we're not immune from those same sort of ethnocentric sort of influences. So diversity is, you know, an issue here, you know, inclusion's an issue here, you know, e equality, you know, there's all of those sorts of things are, you know, visible. I don't know if necessarily they get the same emphasis or have is large a challenge in front of them as say the US market might but I mean and I think technology or the technology sector generally because of its very nature of being very connected and very sort of democratizing it probably will sort of have similar reflected issues no matter where you go. That's interesting and I know that you have this life science software development experience so do you, I mean, I, I would say in terms of like different industries that you could be working in life sciences and healthcare, for instance, those are places where, you know, thinking about inclusion and equity and accessibility is really important when you're building software and technology and services. Have you noticed that or have, do you all pay attention to that as you build out your product suites? Yeah, we definitely do. Because we are a, a cloud-based application, my team is focused on building a product called LT. Uh, which educators use to sort of teach first-year life science at you know, university level. So we're very cognizant of the sorts of things that we need to be aware of in every um, national market. So for the US, we've got, uh, what I've got to be careful here, Section 508, I think, of the Accessibility Act. I've got to be sort of aware of that. So we factor a lot of the requirements around accessibility into our product there. Um, we're not perfect, but we're constantly sort of trying to improve it. 
and yeah, in Europe, you know, uh, GDPR uh, is another mm -hmm. thing. It's not it's not the same as accessibility, but privacy and sort of data ownership is another thing. So we're sort of conscious about what information we're actually including, which is a tricky balance to strike when you're dealing with uh, health information or uh, education information. So yeah, Jacob's saying equity and inclusion and life science being especially important. Yeah, it's hard because I think especially over here in Dunedin, we're a fairly small town and we certainly do not have visibility of the sorts of challenges that uh, a lot of people face out there. And so, you know, trying to anticipate the sort of equity and inclusion needs that our market might have can be a challenge. Mm -hmm. You know, we're quite privileged and I guess um, shielded from a lot of that. And so we really rely on people sort of providing that feedback back to us. Thank you for that. You mentioned, go, just going back to your career pivot to management, what has been the learning curve for that? <laughs> has that been hard? Is it, has it been hard? It depends. No, it hasn't been hard for me because, you know, it's something I was always kind of preparing for. I was always interested in it. I read a lot. Uh, I follow a lot of people on uh, various forums, mostly Twitter, let's be honest, who have sort of really good opinions about that stuff. And so even when I was uh, sort of just still working in, in software development, I was always kind of interested in how, if I was managing this team, how would I want to, to do it better or how would I want to do it differently? So that was always there. But in other ways, it has been hard. You do find that, you know, you like I sort of said earlier, I was kind of confronted with making a choice. Is this something I wanted to go all in with? Or, you know, did I want to sort of keep my sort of hands dirty in the, the technical side? I had to reconcile that with myself for a while. Um, I kind of knew I, I did want to do it. It was an exciting opportunity for me and I was going to go down that route. But it's a very conscious choice I had to make. And so now that I'm in that, I do sort of look back and go, ah, oh, did I make the right call? You know, am I am I actually as prepared for this as I kind of I thought I was? You may hear, or people may hear from you know around about that management is one of those things where you can sort of work your way up to, and people will sort of throw you in the management role and go, "Hey, congrats, you've done great. You're a manager now." You know, knock yourself out, and they'll kind of wander off, and you're sitting there looking around the room, going, "Well, damn, you know, what am I?" What am I going to do? And I think the, the further you work up the chain of command or the sort of hierarchy of an organization, the less direct input or guidance you'll find from your superiors. You have to work a lot more out for yourself. In software development, it's a lot easier to sort of get guidance from your peers or from um, your superiors. You know, the senior developer is coaching the intermediates and the juniors. and that's you know, quite an established structure into management. It's much less like that. I often wonder, you know, because everyone has a lot of ideas about, you know, how they could, what they could do to, you know, organize their team better. Or, you know, I have lots of theories that I've, you know, since I'm not a manager, I don't play them out, which is fine by me at this point in my life. But I often wonder, you know, how many of these ideas seem great in my head and, you know, may not really work out so well when I try to, uh, you know, ship them out to the rest of the team? I've been very, very fortunate with people who have managed me in the past where they are open to feedback and are willing to sort of afford opportunities to to grow. And so I've kind of wanted to model my style on that as well. 
you know, so if I've had an idea, you know, even quite early on as a, you know, entry level dev, if I've sort of said, hey, you know, I reckon we could do this, you know, it'd help us, you know, free up some time or it'll improve our communication. And generally speaking, my, my line managers have said, oh, you know, that's great, let's implement it. And, you know, over time, I've sort of just said, oh, look, Phil, you seem to know what you're doing, so just go ahead and do that stuff anyway. You don't need to ask me about it anymore. And so I've kind of grown in confidence, you know, through that. Not every time, though, I should point out. You know, I think in anyone's career, sooner or later, there is going to be that one place which really knocks you back. And I've had that experience, too, where there was a seriously toxic manager who insisted on micromanaging everyone. It was a very hostile and cutthroat kind of environment and it was this is still Dunedin we're still a small town you know so it was a small place but even so the effects were quite bad but that was a really good learning experience uh, as well. You know you talk about that and that's such an important thing I I feel like so many of us can relate to regardless of you know which function of the organization you're working for and so I'm wondering like how did you go about getting the leadership skills and the soft skills over time to learn how to deal with things of that nature? A lot of the time I'd sort of carve out little niche areas for myself. A lot of my career has been spent in the professional services area where, you know, a client will come to you with money and say, build me a thing and you build them the thing and then build them for every hour, well, almost every minute. It's like lawyers or accountants. It was terrible. Um, But it meant once you built the thing, you know, you'd throw it over the wall of confusion and some, you know, poor schmuck in support would sort of wind up just picking that up or, you know, whichever developer just happened to be sitting around looking suspiciously quiet. And so they'd sort of wind up having to take this on. And so this was like in one of my my very first jobs out of university and I sort of saw them sort of doing this and thought, well, that looks like something that would be more interesting, interested than being on the support desk you know, which is where I was at the time. Hey, hey, developer, how about I take that on for you? Because, you know, I want to I want to learn sort of and get better at development anyway. And, you know, you don't have to worry about doing this stuff. You can concentrate on the, the fun bits of, you know, building that other product you wanted to be on. And so they kind of were very, very willing to, to offload that. And so I was able to build out a, a support role or a support development function, you know, outside of, what I was being paid to do, which was sort of, you know, support tickets. And then that kind of grew into, you know, being quite a a recognized sort of uh, need within the organization. So they sort of, you know, turned that into a full-time role, added more people. So now I was a team leader. And so, over the, you know, over time, it sort of became quite more established. And I was sort of picking up a lot of those leadership and pioneering skills. So I guess, sorry, to answer your question then, I guess, I've kind of, to some degree, I've made my own opportunities. I've found places in the organization where I've sort of said, hey, here is a need or here is something that could, you know, could be useful and just gone ahead and done it. And unless a manager has said, no, don't, then it's kind of worked out quite well that, you know, they've recognized, oh, actually, that's that's really productive. Leave them to it. Well, that's what I was going to say is it sounds like you made your own opportunities, you know, and that you are a person who seeks out those uh, chances to learn and to take on more. You know, but not everyone not everyone has that personality. You know what I mean? And that's um, fine. Yeah. It's not for everyone. I think those of us who get into management, I mean, I was a young manager actually, right out of college too. I, I was always a person that was always taking on too much. <laughs> and then I found myself in management and I was like, Oh, 
I was managing people two and three times my age, and it was really humbling and scary at the same time when I had to fire yes. the first person. I'm like, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing, <laughs> and I can't let anybody know. And so what I would do is spend all my time on the weekends preparing, right, for these tough conversations and, like, going and investing my time and money into professional development, which led me to get a master's degree in organizational leadership and development. I may as well just spend that money because I was going to conferences and buying books and, you know, doing all that I could, books on tape at the time because podcasts weren't a thing. And so I just, I'm just curious because I, I really think that there's a lot of people out here who want to get into management or they think that they do, and they don't understand that, okay, once you get over here, there's a lot that goes into it. Not, not only do you have to like kind of be good at whatever it was that you were doing that landed you that job, right? You also mm-hmm. now need to take on a whole new set of skills that need to complement the technical hard stuff that you were doing. I was going to say it, it's also more than that. Some people um, look at management and know that they, that's what they don't want to do. You know, they, they're like, oh, man, I, I don't want to do that stuff. That looks, that looks scary and awful. True. And, <laughs> and, and because, you know, and for the same reason that people are like, oh, maybe I do want to do it, they don't really know what's involved or they don't fully appreciate whether or not they're necessarily going to be good at it. It just looks like, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing, so therefore I should not do this. It's, you know, just unpalatable to me. I mean, you mentioned before that you were sort of worried or said that you felt like you had no idea what you were doing. And some days I still don't, in fact, probably too many days because that imposter syndrome thing is always there no matter what role you're in or what field of, of work you're in. But I think I think people have sort of perceived ideas of, oh, man, that, you know, that management thing, that's that's not for me. That's just, you know, all the unpleasantness. It's having to deal with arguments and you know, um, telling people off and these people are older than me and I'd feel like, you know, uh, I feel like an asshole sort of having to sort of manage them when they're like 20 years my senior. And so they kind of recoil from it, um, which is a shame, I think, because, you know, it comes back to that diversity thing. I think, you know, more people trying to go down that route is probably going to be a really healthy thing for any organization, you know, you're not just going to get one type of person who's like either too overconfident or is uh, just being promoted on merit or through privilege. So, right. It kind of reminds me of parenting, right? Like, oh my God. You, you have an idea, like, I think I want to have kids. <laughs> or I might be a good parent one day. And you don't know what the hell you're doing until those kids come into the world and you're like, yeah, I kind of suck at this. <laughs> I can't even remember what I thought parenting was. You know what I mean? Like- <laughs> right. I mean, it is not what I thought it was. I can tell you that. What, mm-hmm. the, the thing, I would rather be a manager of like 10 jerks all day long than be a, a mom because honestly, it never stops. There's no break. You, you always have to worry about this human now for the rest mm-hmm. of your life. <laughs> It's really scary. The parallels are very real. And you kind of feel it's a little (laughs) little bit condescending sometimes to sort of equate the parenting skills with management because it sort of of assumes that your team are your kids. And it's not that kind of relationship. But there are skills (laughs) that definitely overlap. And there are some definite parallels. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) For all the parents out there listening, if you want to get into management, actually just, just have kids first. And uh, you can survive that. 
that, you'll be right. fine. Because <laughs> I don't know that management prepares you for kids. I think that it's the other way around, actually. Oops. One of the things that I would say, actually, most recently for me, that I found out about leading teams is that it's really not about me at all, right? Like I started a family and I'm the mother and I also started a business, but it's actually that it's not about me. It's about if I can empower everyone around me to do their best, then we as a team move forward. And so I'm kind of the last one in terms of my needs. I'm really like, oh my God, I, I had this idea. I had this thing. I birthed it. Here it goes, but it's like so much bigger than me, and we will we will have a legacy if I if I do that job really well. So, when you said that, Shantae, what that made me think of is like, so I have a two year old, and I'm starting more more often to see things that he does or you know his personality, and I I look at him like I didn't teach him that, or I didn't you know I can't point to anything that I've done that made him that way, and it's like oh right. He's a human being, you know, <laughs> and I, it's it's just blowing my mind. It's very humbling how there's things that are both good, at, you know, positive and challenging that I have no control over. I there's nothing that I can point to that said like this is something I did that created that. It's just this is the little human that I'm working with, and uh, you know, just like you were saying, like it's realizing that you don't have 100 percent control over over it is, I think, a really good life lesson. Challenging is right. I mean, if you've got a three-year-old, you're automatically qualified to be a foreign affairs negotiator at the UN. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. They will test every limit. (laughs) Yes. I have five-year-old twin boys. Um, And I tell everyone, you know, I feel like a person who's basically a bouncer at a bar, (laughs) but there's like two drunk people Two, two drunk college men who are arguing over things and they throw chairs and they throw drinks and like whatever they, it's like in their reach. And then two minutes later they're making up. And then like 10 minutes after that, I can't understand anything that they're saying. And it's like literally just nuts. And they're punching me and punching each other. It's kind of funny, but I mean, I'm also really scared. <laughs> like, I can't do this too much longer. I'm so tired. Oh, God. Yeah, I, oh man, I really get you. I do. I want to, qualify what we're discussing here and saying of course parenting is not a prerequisite for management i mean we're, we're being a little facetious here right so if you're you know, for listeners that are like well i don't have kids and i'm a great manager that fair enough that's that's cool but yeah you, know, you do sort of realize that there are it surfaces awareness of new skills you didn't know you had so that you know there's patience is one and sort of being able to step away from a challenging situation and take the time to sort of process it for a minute, even when those situations are really volatile. You know, there's one thing my my kids have taught me, it's, you know, what my tolerance for conflict is. Um, (laughs) So, you know, you can recognize those signs when you're starting to feel a bit tied up in knots that you go, okay, well, look, let's step away from this situation for a minute. I think we obviously need to take some time to sort of think this through. With adults, you can have that conversation, right? And you're much more willing to sort of go, hey, well, at least I'm not trying to pull my kids apart. Let's, you know, have this conversation later and, you know, we'll work it out. Yeah. And at least at work, you can step away for a little bit and be offline most of the time. At night. <laughs> at night. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. Yeah. Turn off all the Slack notifications and Twitter notifications and all of those things and you're good. You're good to go. 
Absolutely. And at least I don't know about you, you all, but for me, it's these. It's the same when my son's at daycare. <laughs> Just for you know, with regards to being able to not focus on parenting and know that there's very skilled professionals that are that are focused on that as well for eight hours a day. There's not, nothing. There's nothing like sending the children to somebody else. Somebody else to take care of them. When my kids were just home for uh, winter break, I was like, you know, I literally was counting down the hours, and I was like, God, why? I'm I'm having such a hard time. I should really like get their teachers a present because they're with them <laughs> seven or eight hours a day, and I'm like going berserk. And it's just, it was super interesting because I I was like, wow, you know, this is the most that I've been home with them by myself um, in a while. And it was, you know, Jacob, to your point, I was saying like, who are these people? They're little people with all these decisions and whatnot. And one of the things that kind of came up this last time, because they're old enough now to express themselves was like, oh, mommy, you're working. And all you ever do is work. Don't you ever want to go have some fun? I'm like, what? I'm working from home. I, I thought I was having fun. They're like, no, you always work. Your phone's always on, it's always buzzing. So they really last time they kind of said some things that made me feel bad and I finally had to like put all the things away everything and just realize that these little people who are going to become leaders one day of themselves that it's okay to like have this work-life balance um, they don't quite understand what the work I do it's a little confusing to explain that to them but they don't understand that so me, me working from home it feels like to them I have no boundaries if that makes sense yeah and do you find that no matter which way you slice it, that guilt, that nagging guilt is always in the back of your mind where am I sort of focusing enough on home or am I sort of focusing enough on work? And no matter which you know, balance you strike, it's always that nagging doubt that you know, you're sort of neglecting one in favor of the other. Exactly. Exactly. Do you, Phil, do you get to work from home or do you work at the office every day? Well, I, I choose to work at the office every day, okay. but the opportunity to work from home is always there. And we've got oh, nice. um, recently implemented sort of working from home policy, which makes that you know a bit more codified, which has been great. But it does make me uh, much more conscious of you know uh, trying to sort of set the right examples for the rest of the team that you know if they want to sort of I don't know if they want to sort of work from home, then you know they don't have to sort of feel awkward or guilty about it yeah those there's these these social constructs that have sort of accumulated over time where there was that sort of i guess they call it the protestant work ethic where you have to show up at at the office from eight till five or whatever and you know if you're not doing that then you're clearly not doing your job and you know it can be hard to break that stuff down in sort of trying to encourage people to take leave or to take learning and development opportunities or to, uh, you know, to work from from your lounge if you've got a tradesperson coming through to replace your windows or whatever. You know, it's, you, I find I'm almost having to walk people out of the door and th- sort of throw them out on the street to sort of go, right, go on, do the thing. You know, you're fine. I'm not judging you. And also to, for health reasons too. You know, it's, oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's flu season here and... You know, my, my wife who has, she has some immunity issues and is just, she's like, why can't my coworkers just stay out of the office when they have the flu? You know, it's because it's, it's this really strong thing. It's like, I'm a hard worker. I need to always be in the office. I never miss work. And 
that is a really good that's a really good question yeah it, i think that's something we're starting to see, that at least is something we're starting to see pushback on which is great and i'm very keen to encourage it is people will rock up and you can see them sniffing and looking a little bit subpar and they'll say oh yeah i'm, I'm kind of over the worst of it or you know i'm not too infectious now or or whatever and they've sort of made the call that you know, they're well enough to show up because they feel like they need to be visible. And um, it's a tough judgment call to sort of go, well, actually, I'd rather you weren't here or like, okay, fine. But, you know, if you say, if, as long as you say so, you know, then I'll take your word for it. It's, it's a difficult one to sort of judge what other people's perception is and how comfortable they are with someone who's at least recovering, if not you know, still actually sick. Yeah. And I would guess that, you know, workers have to, it's one thing to be told, take a sick day in the company handbook or whatever, but to really feel that trust that like, you know, if I take a sick day, it's not going to be held against me either in writing or, you know, implicitly. And I would guess that, you know, women and people of color would probably be even more so They would really be need to know that they could trust that there wouldn't be adverse consequences. Mm hmm. Yeah, the the whole like, you know, that that was one thing that when I was managing people, I was cognizant of the fact of my own, like when I would feel guilty, and how much I had to go to great lengths to prove that I was really sick. And it's interesting, I come from the healthcare industry. So of course, working in a health, in a health system or a health center, you know, people are like, well, let's come on in, we'll, we'll take your temperature here. Um and it's like, no, actually, I'm not. Uh, and so depending on which part of the, the industry I was working in, that was either a challenge or, um, you know, or sometimes I could sidestep that. But I felt like at first, for like the first 10 years of my career, I really had, if I was sick, I better have been basically like hit by a truck or something, have the flu and really sick at home. Otherwise, my coworkers would really judge me because we were there like in healthcare, it doesn't stop. And, you know, I'm curious, um, you know, I know, Phil, that you're working in, you said, the healthcare life sciences, you're doing research. Does that nature of that, like, because you have people who are working in, in that industry, does it change the workplace culture and the expectation of, like, what you consider to be health and well-being and I, these I types of things balance at work? I don't feel that it does here because I think we're we're about one layer abstracted away from the sort of front lines of the the actual health industry. We provide some tools and some software, but we're not integrated into the health and uh, life science sector in that way. So I think we've probably got a a nice little reality distortion bubble around our our office here, which you know, shields us to an extent from, you know, any of those sorts of negative influences, I guess, if those are out there. Also, That's possibly, good, yeah, possibly because, again, the virtue of being in a small town at the bottom of the world, you know, we don't sort of have, you know, a lot of the same sort of noise, possibly, that sort of other organisations in, I don't know, Silicon Valley or London or somewhere like that might do. How big is your town? Uh, well, we're a university town, so, you okay. know, during most of the year, we're 120-odd thousand people, um, and over the summer, uh, we're at summer break here, over December, January, we're about 100,000 of permanent residents, roughly. Okay. College towns are fun, at least here in the U.S. Oh, 
college yeah, and university um, are fun. Yeah. I'm equivocating because I mean, yeah, it is. And if you're a student, it absolutely is. Um, I think some <laughs> residents do tire about sort of cleaning up all the broken glass and sort of putting out all the couches that were set on fire <laughs> at the street you know, over the weekend. But but yeah, that's it's, not it's, fun. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's a kind of a fun part of our identity, which we reluctantly accept, I think. I live in a college town. I live in Evanston, uh, right just north of Chicago. Northwestern is here, just in a beautiful place. And I used to live and work in Iowa City, which is another big college town here in the United States. And that was a lot of debauchery. It was not. So to your point of picking up glass and everything, it was not fun. Just yep. poking fun. <laughs> I think I guess we've touched on imposter syndrome on this show a lot, and I've really appreciated hearing about that. Well, I guess I could just open it up to you. Feel like what? What do you do? You have any particular thoughts on the topic, or challenges, or questions? Or I mean, it was something that surprised me. I think you kind of because the the show is very, you know, it's people focused, but in a technology sort of um, focus as well, right? And so we kind of all accept that imposter syndrome is a thing in the technology sector. Um, and I kind of, I don't know why I probably naively thought that it wasn't going to be a factor in, in other disciplines. And that's something that I sort of struggled with last year was, you know, I'd gotten through the sort of work and the t- goals that I'd set and I was sort of sitting around at my desk looking around and going, well, damn, you know, now what, what sort of, I should be, I should be doing stuff. And I don't know, like, managing something and I'm sort of kind of at a loose end here and man maybe I'm you'd start to sort of go through this spiel of you know all the things that I wasn't doing right or didn't know enough about and so that's you know something I've I've really wrestled with was am I actually as qualified and cut out for this as I sort of like to pretend I am that doubt's always there but that's when you sort of go back to reading I think it was it's not always that it's a personal failing. It's probably more of an inspiration problem where you've ticked off the things you kind of said you would. Things are running well, and that's great. And so the challenge is actually, all right, what next? And so I hit the books at that point, and I'm reading a book at the moment called Turn This Ship Around, which I should have read a long time ago. Uh, but that's about a naval commander who takes control of a uh, nuclear submarine and, and um, has to sort of get that up to speed. Well, we can add that in the show notes later, but, you know, that these sorts of resources are the sort of things I really want to sort of fill my head with and sort of go, oh, yeah, we could totally try this at the uh, the workplace. One of the real luxuries I have here is, a, you know, pretty much a freedom to do whatever the hell I want within reason if I can sort of argue that it's, you know, going to provide some benefit or some gain somewhere. So I think after a decent break, of a couple of weeks and having sort of done some reading and sort of gathered some other ideas and had a bit of a refresh, you know, I can feel a bit more confident that, you know, I've got somewhere that I want to go next and some things I want to do, but it, it can be hard to sort of be in a new role and management from development is a completely different role. You're not sort of moving up a career ladder. And I think people have said this before, you're, you've got to a ladder and now you're sort of stepping off and you're starting on a brand new ladder. And so, you know, looking at it that way, it means that there's a lot more that I can sort of learn and upskill in, um, and that's encouraging. So, 
Yeah, and it, it occurs to me that, you know, we have a concept of junior developers or junior engineers, and I don't hear about junior managers as often, you know, and, and by which I mean the acknowledgement that you may have been have a lot of experience, you know, as, a, as an engineer or in a technical position, and you have a lot of experience uh, managing yourself, so to speak, and then all of a sudden you're put in charge of a team and... Of course, that's going to be a new thing to you. And, you know, of course, that's going to have a learning curve. And that kind of has to come with a acknowledgement that that's something you're learning and you probably need some mentorship from a more experienced manager and all the same things. Yeah, yeah it does. Um, you're right. You mentioned the sort of junior, intermediate, senior developer. You don't tend to see that as much or it's not as obvious in in management, you don't sort of get called a, a junior intermediate or senior manager much, or maybe or maybe senior. You might get like sort of senior VPs and things like that. I guess we don't see that as much here. But yeah, that you know that sort of um, growth and expansion of your your skills and your role. You know, yeah, it is a, a fresh start. There was another book I was reading by Camille Fournier. I hope I pronounced her name right. Called uh, the Manager's Path, and that's basically just a collection of her blog posts where she started off from a software developer, worked up to team lead, engineering manager, so on and so on, up to CTO and playing in the big leagues. And that's been a fantastic resource as well. It's sort of not just because, you know, sorry, not just for somebody that wants to get into management, but somebody like me who sort of had started out as a developer and wants to look at, well, what sort of skills, if I'm going to take on a team leadership thing and be a senior developer, what sort of skills do I need to sort of demonstrate? And it articulates those things really, really well. And so I'd recommend that book for anybody that, you know, you don't have to be in management or want to get into management, but it gives you a really good sort of grounding for the sorts of things that you should be working towards just in software development for the next stage of your career or to expand your expand your role or your responsibilities a bit. Yeah. Something I've been thinking about more is managers are, you know, they're, they're supposed to be responsible for doing their magic to sort of motivate and coordinate their team. And I think I heard the phrase uh, managing up, like, you know, how do I be yeah. how, such a, how do I be the best employee possible to help my manager do a good job and help my manager manage me you know like so uh, yeah i wonder if like a book if books like that would be something that really you know someone like me who's not an on management track maybe i maybe i should be reading more about that um possibly i think the thing that served me well was along those lines where i could see that somebody else was getting slammed with stuff that they obviously weren't really enthusiastic about whether that's your manager or a somebody else elsewhere in the organization and I recognize that I hey I can fill that gap you know I've got the capacity or I've got the skill set hey person can I can I take that off you you know I'm happy to do that it'd be sort of a good you know skill growth for me so especially for managing up or talking to your manager if you can see them sort of you know having to you know knock out a monthly report and you can see the life fading from their eyes and the color draining from their face with every keystroke <laughs> you know, then, you know, you can go, oh, hey, I'm, you know, this looks like something that I should be aware of at least and helps me sort of inform inform what's going on or for myself about what's going on in the organization. Can I take that off your hands for you? More often than not, they're going to be super willing to, to go, oh, God, please take it. You know. you know, to that point, one of the things that when I found myself managing 
waking up. And I now, when I notice other people doing the same thing, I often recognize that skills like self-awareness and self-mastery because those who are aware of just not only, I guess, their own personal sort of feelings to something, they, they tend to have a little bit more empathy and awareness and emotional intelligence when it comes to, you know, their coworkers and their managers and what have you and can empathize with maybe why there's a deadline or why there's this report that nobody wants to do or this thing that has to happen. And, and then usually what's the difference between somebody like being able to kind of jump in and help is if like their load is taken care of. So that requires that self-mastery. You know what I mean? And I and what, one of the areas I spent a lot of time in when I was getting my master's degree was this sort of area of leadership development. Like how are leaders going to develop themselves for like as cheaply and as freely as possible? Because most of us don't have the money. And I, I could empathize with that as a young kind of inexperienced and poorly paid manager myself. I knew that it was really key. So I, I did lots of reading in terms of self-development, self-help books. Even the ones that are like, I didn't think were, were my issue ended up being kind of a people issue. Uh, and I think it made me a better leader. And as I've gotten more mature, I've just spent so much more time being more introspective than I, I probably would have been had I not been encouraged or, you know, put on the management path. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. But I, that's one area that I think everyone should kind of regardless of who you are and what you do, if you can start there, like the self-reflection is huge and it's free. It's painful sometimes. Yeah. I love that point. I think, yeah, introspection and self-awareness is such a critical skill and it's, it's hard to know how to do that well or sort of can be you know, difficult to sort of pick areas where you can explore and sort of critique yourself and go, well, you know, where, where are some gaps or, you know, what shall I sort of do next? But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right when you say that, you know, it's, it's a real uh, precursor to, to empathy with others. I, you know, I love that point. That's great. Yeah. Thank you for that. Jacob, what do you, what do you think? I mean, cause you're, you're on the pathway to you're in an independent developer role right now, but do you feel like those are things that you already do or that are, that you're able to do given oh, the nature of your work. And- oh yeah, definitely. You know, and I, I feel like I can always be better at that, but yeah, I know something, for example, that I've been trying to work on is, is my own personal documentation, right? Like, so like we have shared documentation for our team and then there are just like things that are specific only to sort of me and my brain and how I interface with everyone else. And I need to write those down. Right. So it's like, there's this one thing about, you know, how our team works together and it was confusing for me. I'm going to write it down. Or it's one thing that like, you know, I wouldn't have done it this way naturally. And I need to sort of like get myself into the habit of doing it. I'm going to journal. I'm going to, I did a reflection last week about like, I keep getting this one thing wrong with our team. Like I'm finding that I'm doing it at the last minute and it's sort of, it's feeling like it's difficult and I can tell that it's sort of making extra work for my manager when I do that. What can I do to get sort of, let me see if I can write down a strategy for how I can sort of get myself into the habit of being able to sort of deliver on that a little bit earlier in the day. So, you know, everyone can sort of just go along a little, a little bit more happy. So yeah, Absolutely. I, I, I think that's sort of just what part of what being a professional is, is about um, recognizing that like you're not 
just a cog that's going to sort of produce widgets is like you're responsible for your own personal growth and professional growth. Like you can't, like no one's going to tell you, hey, you need to reflect on this, right? So you, it's your job to sort of identify whether what are those things you need to come along and, you know, just sort of up the ante a, a little bit for yourself. Yeah, people have probably heard Coraline mention a couple of times on this podcast before that um, she keeps a, a, a diary or a personal journal in the same way, right? And um, there's a book, uh, I'm going to keep reciting books, I apologize for this. There's a book by Jerry Weinberg uh, called Becoming a Technical Leader. And again, he recommends keeping a, a sort of three to five minute daily personal journal of, you know, how you're going, you know, what sort of challenges did, do you sort of see today or what sort of problems did you find? And, you know, just doesn't have to be long, but just just forming that habit is a really, really um, great tool to help you improve. Not not necessarily st- talking about leadership or management. It could be for anything, just, you know, for development or whatever. But it's a very, very useful tool for introspection and going back and looking how far you've come over six months or whatever. It's, yeah, it's well worth it. Yeah. And and also, um, you know, so like every team is going to sort of organize, you know, they're going to employ certain technology, like whether it's Jira or Trello or whatever, of how they're going to sort of organize and communicate. And I also, I've been thinking more about like, everyone needs to also identify, like, because every management system like that is going to have some issue with somebody, like someone's going to have some problem with with Jira, right? And it's about identifying like, what are the things about it that just are not clicking for me? And then it's, it's like, what can I do to sort of supplement? And what can I do to create my own, like just individual system, right? Maybe like, so for example, like we don't use Trello at work, but I use Trello extensively. And I have my own individual system that I try to be really strict about. And I've thought, I've really tried to think about like, what, how is my individual system going to sort of link in with the team system so that the, if there's something about my team system that like just wasn't working for me, I've got, I've got something that's going to sort of help me adapt a little bit better. And I think that's just sort of something that everyone can sort of think about. Like, how can I adapt to the team's chosen technology a little bit better? Yeah, I, th- I think that comes back to Chantel's point about sort of that self-mastery thing right where you know your willingness to help is a product of sort of how you're able to take your own ego out of the equation and sort of try and find ways to sort of you know make other people's sort of lives a bit easier or sort of work in with other people's needs mm-hmm. yeah the the other thing that I find to be really interesting is like after I got into working with more technical teams and, you know, just kind of understanding how they work in terms of agile frameworks and whatnot, I find that a lot of these teams are, are really great at identifying productivity tools and, you know, um, identifying where there's a gap between, you know, what they need to be doing and what the team perceives them to be doing. And so folks are really great about taking it upon themselves to, you know, to use the Trello board or to use Jira or something else that works if if it's just kind of a, an issue at work. But when I work with folks who are not on technical teams, I mean, I am like almost jarred by the amount of folks who are not aware of the number of cool applications that are free that allow you to have the self-management and productivity superpower. So I, I spend a lot of time with my, with my own personal workflows 
and um, mastering those lately. And those have been really helpful. And it's mostly because I ran a business or I run a business that I kind of had to start to adopt this and adhere to it. I don't think I would have fully adopted it if I, if I didn't, but it's been night and day for me. And so I encourage anybody who's not technically in a technical role or on a technical team, but you work at a technology company, for instance, you know, maybe, maybe you're in marketing or business development or your people operations, whatever. I would highly recommend to go spend some time with folks on the technical team and find out how they're dealing with their workflows because it probably will make your life easier. So true. I mean, I think the more senior you sort of become or the more relied upon you become within a team or an organization, the more prone you are to interruptions. And so those sorts of tools become real lifesavers if you sort of find one that really works for you. What are some personal favorites for you for you two? Uh, for me? Well, hey, I'll tell you what, a personal favorite for me is a notebook. Um, it's not a technical tool. And, you know, as a software developer, I should probably turn in my geek card. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, a notebook is is probably my go-to for a lot of my day. And what are you, uh, Jacob, you said Trello, right? Yeah, yeah. I I kind of think about like I like to imagine like my team is like a series of like pipes where like people are sending. Remember, I I, I always like you see it in like older movies, like people those pneumatic tubes where you put a piece of paper in a like I oh guess a God, metal yes. tube and then you put it in the building and it like sucks it up to like five stories or whatever. I just like think of like my team like that where like we're, we're constantly passing messages back and forth and then it's our job to sort <laughs> of like just keep them moving and getting and then, mm-hmm. and then eventually like they get spit out um, into the outside world where they are actually generating value for our customers. Yeah, like so like I just try to model that pipeline or like my individual pipeline inside Trello, it's like, okay, things are going to come in this way and then they're going to sort of progress as I do work on them. And then I'm going to put them in another tube and I'm going to send them off to whoever else it is. And then, yeah, just sort of make sure like all everything is always moving. Another personal tool, which I really like, well, I find it's really useful for me is um, writing a blog. My, so my blog, which is, and it's in a, uh, shall we say, it's in a state of uh, renewal at the moment. Uh, but mm-hmm. I find it's really useful for me to be able to sort of coalesce thoughts and sort of get, you know, ideas into a coherent state by sort of just writing about it. Um, just the process of writing is really, really cathartic and useful, I find. Hmm. Yeah, that, that would be, I, I guess, to echo what both of you have said, for me, I use a notebook for sure. I love writing. And I also definitely use Trello. I also love Airtable. Have either of you used Airtable? No. That's oh, amazing. I just love it. It's that's like a you can make a database with it. Yeah, and you, it's very much like Trello and a lot of other productivity tools and kind of one product management and project management can happen inside of that. But like you said, you can build a personal database, and it's really visually pleasing, easy. Cool. I'm gonna look that up. Thanks. Good to know. Yep, I love that one. What else? Have we touched on everything that you wanted to talk about, Phil? The thing that's sort of really been irking me this uh, part of the year, the first week of the year, has been watching you know, conversations around what Uber's doing or sort of new Lime scooters and things like that. And this, there is so much crazy stuff um, going on at the moment. New Zealand's really sort of watching Australia sort of literally going up in flames. And oh. Right, it's been it's been wild. You know, our, our cities over here have woken up to bright orange, you know, days throughout the day, or turning our lights on during the day because the smoke from Australia is covering our country. It's wild, but yeah, you know, 
and so this is where I'll sort of come back to the one sort of aspect I sort of really want to sort of get my hands dirty in next will be that sort of ethical digital citizen concepts and what solutions could we sort of create where it's citizens before consumers, not consumers before citizens. I'm really sort of, maybe I'm getting older and I sort of were getting into that stage where I was sort of like, I really want to sort of try and find a, a better solution for this. You know, we keep all these Silicon Valleys with their, their VC funding are doing sort of really wild sort of, you know, wild products. But um, we're all the ones that are sort of dealing with environmental issues or um, education issues or health or whatever. And so that's a, a thing that I sort of want to try and start exploring. I don't know if I can sort of do that as a manager or as a developer, but you know, it's definitely I'm starting to feel a lot more energized about the idea of sort of finding a way to contribute something on that front. Yeah, I, I totally share that same sentiment. I mean, I, I think a lot about being, you know, a global citizen and what that means as we're going into this new, you know, fourth industrial revolution. And so, you know, what what it was looking like locally was, you know, taking good care of my neighbors and making sure I was cleaning up the spaces around me and being mindful of my my noise and, you know, never littering and never really talking poorly about people. But as we get into this, like, digital and virtual world, I'm definitely thinking a lot about that. I think that's a really interesting topic. And I'm curious to know, like, you know, in terms of, like, since this is about leadership and whatnot, how you might go about that, not only for yourself personally, but at work, would that be something that you would put out or could it be something you could put out like as a hackathon or like as a team challenge to say like, what can we yeah. do better? Like if there's one thing we can do better here to, to be better global digital virtual citizens, what would it be? One of the things that I find very easy for me was sort of, I've come to the table with ideas and they might be crazy ideas sometimes, but I like to sort of go, Hey, why don't we try thing? And yeah, you know, I've done sort of hackathons as well where we can sort of the, the, problem domain is well defined and we can go all right well you know here is some data that we can work with let's you know attack or use that to build this thing and so i i feel like you know i personally want to sort of try and do that for some of these other issues but now the problem domain isn't quite as well defined you can't sort of go yeah hey solve environmentalism or sort of solve solve education or whatever you know yeah i think i'm i rely a lot more for people to sort of be talking about what are the specific problems, you know, that have wide-reaching sort of um, consequences or wide-reaching applications. That's when I find that I function better, and so that's why I'm sort of I'm a bit frustrated, I guess, at the moment where I'm like, I kind of I've got this energy, I want to do the do something useful here, but I can't really tell where to direct that energy. Yeah, and I that's where I come to have a, a lot of appreciation for well, just I guess in broad terms the people who can identify what those, you know, identify where to, where to direct that energy, you know, like whether it's like people who can say like, Oh, well we need, if, if the problem is X, then we need a piece of technology that looks like Y and then people will want to use it. And then that'll solve this problem. And I come, I'm, I'm really having a lot of appreciation for that because that, that is not easy. Uh, I think a lot of the problems seem too big to attack and i think a lot of them sort of come back to you know ultimately political problems and i don't want to get into politics here but i mean i think that is probably where you know i don't know necessarily if technology could be a solution but sort of certainly communities probably are and that's that sort of 
well, maybe that's that sort of bias that I have around sort of wanting to get people together is I'm sure there's there's communities out there or so there could potentially be communities out there that want to sort of attack these sort of things and have ideas for how um, it's just sort of finding them and bringing them together, which is a bit nebulous. Yeah, there's there's an organization that I'm trying to remember the name of it. I'm going to look for it right now. I think I think it's the Global Digital Citizen Foundation or Institute of some or something like that. Anyway, are, are either one of you familiar? Not with that name, no, no. It's an organization, and, and I came across it earlier in the year, and I was doing some planning. And essentially, if, I, if my memory serves me correct, basically they have you know some great resources in terms of how you prepare not only students, but other, like, you know, anybody who's interested in professional learning development, how to become great stewards of the world, of the globe that we are occupying, the space we're occupying, uh, and thinking about it from a digital perspective. So that might be a resource we can include in the show notes, because I think that this is such an interesting topic and maybe one that we would need to explore more on the show. Yeah, for sure. I'd be fascinated with that. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. It's definitely, it's definitely something that I think is important. <laughs> As you see, like you said, Australia going up in flames. You know, it's one of these things to think like, well, what causes that? Well, it's the overheating of our world. And as we're working, in, those of us who are in technology and those of us who love to consume it, we can't deny the fact that it takes a lot of energy and power and heat to, you know, to maintain servers, even though they're in somebody's cloud, they're not really in a cloud. <laughs> they're, they're somewhere else, just not in front of us. And we have to be mindful about the data and information that we're creating and holding on to. I'm, I'm like the most guiltiest person when it comes to having like ridiculous amounts of, you know, storage and keeping things digitally that I shouldn't keep. But I have to remind myself that that takes up space on somebody's server and it might not impact me, but it could impact another country, and they might have some global warming over there. So I need to be more mindful about my digital footprint, for example. Yeah, that's before we even get into all the Bitcoin mining, right? Exactly. It's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah. There's no such thing as a free lunch. There's no such thing as doing things without consequence, right? Period. Yeah interesting topic and I want to make sure we continue it so whether you come back on for a part two or we like continue the thread and you know have this as a as a show theme and then you can come back on and we can talk about it yeah I'd love so stay, to. stay tuned folks <laughs> <laughs> so reflection time Jacob you want to go first yeah sure I'm thinking about how I am definitely an individual contributor in my, that's, that's the career track I'm on and I'm, I'm happy with that. And I'm thinking more about how, even though that's where I am, I can still be thinking about the art of management and, you know, how can I interface better with my managers? How can the art of management help me be a better team member, help my manager manage me better? And really, or really just to be aware of it, because I think there's some empathy to be found there for my managers. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to be thinking more about that. Yeah, I, I keep coming back to Chantel's point about the sort of self-awareness and empathy. And I, I really like that sort of introspective uh, angle that she sort of mentioned. Um, I keep sort of finding myself wanting to push my people 
to sort of, you know, go in a particular direction or sort of find new opportunities. And I think it would be really good for me to sort of just take a step back and, you know, look at where the, the motivation for that sort of, for the, yeah, where the motivation for that is coming from. Uh, is it because I have some expectation that they should do a thing or is it because I think they, you know, they genuinely want to do it? And so I think, you know, it would be good for me to sort of go back and actually just take a bit more time to sort of, step outside myself and you know have a bit more time to sort of explore what my own motivations are for wanting to do things for the rest of my team and sort of build out that empathy more that's great i I think to your point you know i was thinking a lot about the imposter syndrome and how we had this conversation i was thinking like the imposter syndrome when you first said i was thinking around tech or is this around actually just being in spaces you don't necessarily think you should be in quite yet and how at some point in time we're all imposters. You know, you have to, you usually are when you're trying something new. Um, so I think it not only helps me, but I'm guessing all that you know to do as much reading upon that uh, as you can. If leadership is in the future for you or not, I think it would do all of us some some good to understand like when you're wading through those those feelings of uncertainty and being vulnerable, regardless of the job and the functionality of the on the team. Sure. Well, thank you. So I really appreciate you being able to jump in on this conversation all the way from the bottom, as you say, of the earth. We really appreciate it. It's yeah. been so, uh, so great. I'm really thrilled to have been on this. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Hopefully it's not the last. Come back. Yeah. Sure, absolutely.